sex assault, also known as rape. How is sex assault defined in Nevada? Let's get into that. It's defined as follows. When a person subjects another person to sexual penetration or who forces another person to make a sexual penetration on himself or herself or another against the will of the victim or under conditions in which the perpetrator knows or should know that the victim is mentally or physically incapable of resisting or understanding the nature of his or her conduct. Well, let's get to some plain speak. Any type of penetration, however slight, anal, mouth, vaginal, oral sex done against a person or another person, they do not have the capacity to consent either because of their age or because they don't have the mental faculties to consent. Well, that's rape, also known as sex assault, or sex assault, also known as rape. Let me give you an example. John digitally penetrates Mary against her will with his finger, right? That's rape, AKA sex assault. How about this one? John forces Mary to give him fellatio, also known as a blowjob. That is rape. How about this? John performs cunnilingus on Mary against her will. That is rape, also known as sex assault. How about this one? Here's a little twist. John and Mary go out for a night of dinner and dancing. Mary has too much to drink. When they get back to John's apartment, John and Mary have sex. Mary later claims, oh my God, I was way too drunk to have sex with John. Now, this is a question for a jury, but John will likely be charged with sex assault. Why? Because Mary will say she didn't have the capacity to consent. Or this one. John is 22 years old and he has sex with Mary who is 11 years old. Now, Mary is totally into John and the sex is completely consensual. As a result of Mary's age, the law would view her as mentally and maybe even physically incapable of consenting. Rape, also known as sex assault. Now, what are your defenses? Let's get into them. Number one, the best one, false allegations, right? False allegations of sexual misconduct, including sex assault, is rampant. Police will arrest you and your life will be turned upside down based solely on the words of an alleged victim. In a case of false allegations, investigation is key, as well as a good theme and a defense theory. Number two, in those situations where consent is required, another defense is consent. John never raped Mary, she consented. 
They had sex because they both wanted to. She's coming after him now for a number of reasons. Most commonly, you guessed it, dollars, right? She wants his money. Or, it's a, it's, I'm part of the Me Too movement. She wants attention, right? You remember those situations when you were in school and somebody came in with a cast with a broken leg? Oh my God, I wanted a cast too, right? So everyone would sign it. Some adults are not that different from children. Or how about those situations where they just didn't feel good about themselves afterwards? They had a one night stand and rather than take responsibility for the act themselves, they want to say it's somebody else's fault. He raped me. Penalties. Nowadays, you might as well be charged with murder because you're going to probably do less time for killing someone than being convicted of a rape or sex assault. Now, depending on the age of the victim, the penalties differ and whether the victim suffered substantial bodily harm. I'll get into that. Now, when the victim is 16 years or older, the defendant is going to go to way, go away for a minimum of 10 years to life. That's the minimum penalty, 10 years imprisonment. Now, if the victim suffered substantial bodily harm as a result of the rape, the penalty increases to the following. Life without the possibility of parole or parole eligibility after 15 years. What about when the victim is 14 to 15 years? serious, right? Life imprisonment. Life with the possibility of parole after 25 years. If substantial bodily harm results, life, no parole. Going away for the rest of your life. Whole section of the guidelines manual, they have chapter two, in fact, it's the bulk of the guidelines manual pretty much uh, that is chapter two. So how do you determine which particular guideline is going to be the chapter two guideline you will use. Well, that's in guideline 1B1.2. One means that you're in chapter one of the guidelines manual. B means you're in part B of chapter one. And then 1.2 is the specific guideline there. So obviously I'm now referring you back to chapter one. Well, chapter one is probably the most important chapter in the book for correctly applying chapters two, three, four, and then ultimately chapter five. So uh, there are a lot of things going on in chapter one that we will be referring to, uh, particularly this guideline and relevant conduct, which is also back in chapter one. When you're deciding which chapter two guideline you're going to use, you use the one most applicable to the offense of conviction. And again, going back to some of the decisions early on the Sentencing Commission made in writing guidelines, uh, it was like, do we write these guidelines for an offensive conviction system? You know, it's what you're convicted of is going to dictate essentially what the sentence is going to be, or is it more of a real offense sentencing system? You look at what really went on out there, regardless as to what they're convicted of, and then the sentence would really be driven by that. 
and the Sentencing Commission really has come up with what we sort of see as a hybrid system. Uh, but that hybrid system begins as an offensive conviction system. What the defendant is convicted of will dictate which Chapter 2 guideline is going to be used. In your guidelines manual, back in Appendix A, we have what is called a statutory index. And the statutory index lists most of the codes that the Sentencing Commission sees being violated that result in convictions in the federal court. We have those codes listed. And then we list the Chapter 2 guideline that we think should be the applicable guideline for that offense of conviction. Now, in our scenario, what was our defendant convicted of? What, what statutory section of law? 2113? Okay, and what was the subsection? A and D. Okay, now, if you go to the Appendix A, you'll see that under 2113A, we have four potential Chapter 2 guidelines listed. You know they're Chapter 2 guidelines because they all begin with the number 2. Now, under 2113D, you see there's just one guideline listed there. And there has to be a decision as to which guideline is the most applicable guideline for your offensive conviction. If you were to look up those guideline sections that are listed back there, those Chapter 2 guideline sections, you would see that they are the guidelines, 2B1.1, larceny guideline, the burglary guideline, the robbery guideline, and the extortion guideline. Those are the four potential guidelines. The commission says one of these probably will be your applicable guideline for this offense of conviction that we have in our scenario. The reason we have more than one guideline listed under 2113A is that if you read that section of law, 2113A, it says it's against the law to commit larceny or burglary or robbery or extortion involving a bank. So we're not really sure what that guy's convicted of on our end. Now, it's not going to be that complicated for you folks because you'll have the charging instrument, the, the information or indictment that the individual has pled guilty to, and that will have the elements of the offense your defendant has pled guilty to. So in that case, you look and see what the defendant was convicted of. So regardless as to what the facts surrounding this offense may look like, your, your concern at this point is what was the defendant convicted of? And say, well, the defendant was convicted of larceny. That's the offense of conviction. I'm reading the elements of 2113A. It's the offense of larceny. Now, it sure looked like a robbery, but that doesn't matter. In choosing the Chapter 2 guideline, you would go to the larceny guideline under that set of facts. Now, having discovered which guideline we're going to use, we go back to Chapter 2 to begin applying that Chapter 2 guideline. I think that you'll find the worksheets are a most helpful way, for those of you that have never applied the guidelines before, of making sure you don't miss a step in the application of the guidelines. It will send you through the sequential, correct sequential application of the guidelines, keeping you from missing any of the appropriate uh, guidelines or adjustments that need to be considered. Okay, the robbery guideline. 
uh, the robbery guideline 2B3.1 is going to be our applicable guideline for this offense conviction in this scenario. The robbery guideline is like, I would say, most of the guidelines in Chapter 2 in that it has a set base offense level. This defendant is going to start at an offense level 20. You've looked at your sentencing table. This guy's down to the number 20 in that left-hand column at this point of guidelines application. But that's not the end of the calculations in Chapter 2, because then you have these specific offense characteristics, characteristics that will send you further down the table or, or for sometimes back up the table, depending upon whether it's an aggravating or a mitigating characteristic. You'll see in the robbery guideline, if it's a financial institution or post office, you add to it. What I'm here to talk about is the life of a case. Now this is important. Uh, you will focus on this topic in civil procedure. The other courses that you're going to be taking this semester and this first year are going to be dealing mostly with substantive law, contracts towards criminal law, property. And those are the substantive areas that defines people's rights, etc. But civil procedure is that subject that focuses on the process of litigating those rights when a dispute arises. And it's very important to understand how that process works. So you're going to learn about that from start to finish in your civil procedure class. So what I'm going to do today is give you an overview from start to finish as to what that looks like. And we're going to start with what typically is the beginning of a dispute is there is some type of incident. So we'll keep it simple in this situation. We'll talk about a car accident. Very simple uh, situation where you have two people colliding on a road and there's a dispute that arises. There's injuries, personal injuries, property damage. So we have the issue of what do we do about this? Now, someone who's injured in that situation is probably going to want to seek legal recourse to recover for that. They can do that through the vehicle of a lawsuit. So we'll style that person as the plaintiff, and then we'll have a person that they sue as a defendant. Now, the questions that you're going to have to look at in civil procedure are many-fold, but some of them include who can I sue, where can this be done, what am I suing for, how do we do this? Now, and there's, you might as well throw in there, when can this be done? Now, the issue of what we're going to be suing for is going to be the topic that you'll be focusing on in your substantive law classes. So in a car accident, we're going to have a classic case of negligence, or maybe the person was driving recklessly, or they may have intentionally tried to target you with their vehicle. Then it goes up to different levels. But that's all within the realm of torts. So you would be studying the what to assert in this claim in your torts course. But the question that you're concerned with in civil procedure and that the question that you'll have to be aware of if you are the attorney for the plaintiff as well as if you're the attorney for the defendant 
is where can I do this? As you just learned, there are many different jurisdictions, different court systems throughout the United States. Every state, the District of Columbia, the territories, they all have judicial systems. And then there's the federal judicial system as well. So with this car accident, where among all of those places can this go? It's not necessarily just one place, it may be multiple places. But you have to know as the lawyer, where can I go? Can I go into Virginia State Court? Can I go into Wyoming Federal Court? Maybe it's both of them. Maybe it's neither one. Same thing as the defendant's lawyer. When your client is sued in a particular place, you as their lawyer need to be able to say, you can't sue us here. You've chosen the wrong location. You need to sue us somewhere else, so this case needs to be dismissed. So part of where can this case be brought is going to be the issue of federal versus state court. Now the state courts, generally speaking, are courts of general jurisdiction. They can hear cases of all kinds, with certain exceptions, where there are some federal law claims that are exclusively uh, tied to the jurisdiction of the federal courts. So you don't have to worry as much about that right now. Generally speaking, state courts can hear all kinds of cases. Federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. What limited jurisdiction means is that they can only hear those cases that Congress has affirmatively granted them the authority to hear through statutes. So Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution sets forth the scope of the judicial power, then Congress has to dole that out to the inferior federal courts, the federal district courts. So courts that are in the federal system can only hear those cases of a kind that have been given to it. So when we have this type of case right here, which is a simple car accident, our question is, is this the kind of case that can go into federal court or state court? Well, state courts, again, are courts of general jurisdiction. They are certainly going to be able to hear a case of this kind. But that doesn't mean it can't go into federal court. It depends on... A battery on a police officer is a very serious offense, not just related to the consequences you face in court, but the simple fact is, if you have a conviction for this offense, you can probably expect a fairly unpleasant contact with law enforcement anytime you get pulled over in the future. A battery on a police officer does not just include police, but it also includes firemen, marshals, court officers, and correction officers. In order to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, a prosecutor has to show two things. Number one, that the officer was on duty, and number two, that the defendant, our client, knew or should have known that the person was a police officer. In a situation where an officer is on duty, in uniform, in a marked squad car, it's pretty obvious. However, if the officer is in plain clothes or an unmarked car, we may be able to argue that our client did not realize that that person was a police officer.
If the police officer involved did not suffer substantial bodily harm, then a conviction for battery on a peace officer is a gross misdemeanor here in Nevada, which means that you could face up to one year in local county jail. On the other hand, if the officer did suffer substantial bodily harm, and that would be broken bones, contusions, uh, cuts or lacerations that required stitches, if the officer suffered substantial bodily harm, then it's a Category B felony that carries 2 to 10 years in Nevada State Prison and can actually be up to 15 years if a weapon was used. A battery on a police officer is the type of charge where many innocent people get wrongfully accused. The good news is, here at the Las Vegas Defense Group, we have a successful track record of litigating these cases in order to get them dismissed or reduced. One defense in a battery against an officer is self-defense. Many people don't realize that while an officer can use reasonable force and restraint to take someone into custody, he does not have the right to use excessive force against someone. So if excessive force is being used against you, as in all battery cases, you have the right to use reasonable self-defense to defend yourself. If the jury agrees with us that you were acting in lawful self-defense, that would be a complete defense and lead to an acquittal. Another common defense uh, is that the officer is lying or exaggerating. And quite frankly, I think that happens all the time in these sorts of cases. Uh, it, it's often a situation where the, the police don't like a particular suspect, he's rude, he's mouthing off to them. So they will simply add on or tack on a charge of resisting arrest or assault on a peace officer, even if that never happened, just to really stick it to the person and increase their charges. Or we have situations where the police literally will go out and beat someone up for no reason. And fortunately, I think that, that now with, with cameras on patrol cars and cell phones, this is becoming less frequent. But it still happens. And when they bring him to the station, the, 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 the suspect has welts and has swelling and has injuries that get photographed and they have to take, take the suspect to get a medical evaluation. And the police have to justify why they beat the person up. So they say, oh yeah, he, he took a swing at officers. He was combative. He, he took a, a fighting stance. And so we were just defending ourselves. And the real tragedy in this situation is not only did the police wrongfully and unnecessarily beat up a suspect, but then they lie and exaggerate and make up phony charges against that subject to paint themselves as the victim and to make the case worse against him. Another defense to battery on a police officer is accident. For example, the officer tells you, put your hands behind your back. In doing so, there's an elbow movement, or the officer tackles you, and in the process of falling to the ground, the officer gets hurt. This may be a case where it was simply an accident, where there was no intent to commit a battery on the police officer. In that scenario, where any contact you had was accidental, 
You should not be held criminally liable, and we stand a great chance of getting your charges reduced or dismissed. Before we get into that discussion, we are again going to turn to Rusty Burris, and he's going to give us a brief introduction of grouping under Rule D. More counts than any other type of account are going to fall under this type of uh, rule. And that rule says that if counts use the same or similar guidelines, I got 50 counts of drug trafficking, hmm, they use the same guideline. Each count uses the 2D1.1 drug trafficking guideline. And if that guideline is included at 3D1.2D, in other words, if you go into your guidelines manual to 3D1.2 under Section D and we list the guidelines that are covered there and drug trafficking is listed there, uh, then you apply the guidelines as if for a single count application. Basically what you do, you add up the quantities of the drugs, you apply the guidelines one time. They have been grouped together. They're treated as a composite harm as such, because what you've done, you've looked at the harm from each of the counts by aggregating the quantities. You're giving some consideration for all that harm when you apply the guidelines that one time. Now let me get back to the interaction between relevant conduct and Rule D. When you are applying the guidelines, when you are at the relevant conduct guideline, 1B1.3, there is a special provision under A2 of 1B1.3 that states for offenses that are listed as included for grouping under 3D1.2D, those offenses are subject to what we refer to as expanded relevant conduct. And what that means is that the time frame for the acts that you're allowed to consider of the defendant and the limited acts of others has been expanded beyond the standard time frame of relevant conduct. The standard time frame of relevant conduct advises us that any act of the defendant that occurred during the commission of the offense of conviction in preparation for the, that offense or to avoid detection or responsibility for that offense of conviction is relevant conduct. However, for these special guidelines that are listed at 1B1, listed at 3D1.2D, but referred to in relevant conduct section A2, those offenses now have been broadened. You can look at the acts of the defendant or limited acts of others that occur during the same course of conduct or common scheme or plan as the offense of conviction. And as you probably already know, when you are applying relevant conduct, if you have, let's say, five counts of drug trafficking, when you go to 2D1.1 and apply that guideline for the first time, you are not simply limited to the amount of drugs or the conduct of the defendant that occurred during that first count of conviction. You know that relevant conduct would allow you to expand your application to include all conduct of the defendant, all drug quantities that were involved in these counts of conviction, 
that were part of the same course of conduct or common scheme or plan as that first count. So technically what you've done is you've grouped those offenses before you get to chapter 3 because of relevant conduct. Relevant conduct is allowing you to aggregate all of that quantity before you even get to your decisions about the grouping rules. But what we're going to do now is take a look at the list of offenses that are going to be included under this provision. The thing that's nice about uh, grouping at Rule D is that we do give you a, a list of offenses right there in the guideline and say these are the types of offenses that are groupable at Rule D. Um, also, these are the ones that we mention at, at Relevant Conduct, 1B1.3, that are subject to expanded relevant conduct. That's so right. let's take a list, take a look at the list of the types of offenses that are groupable at Rule D, things like drug trafficking, thefts, money laundering, firearms. Um, you may notice that this list, while, has, while it has a number of different offenses, all of these offenses have something in common. Um, there, is, there is either a total amount of harm or loss, there is some sort of aggregate quantity involved, um, or some sort of other aggregate measure of harm or, or loss, or these types of offenses represent behavior that is ongoing or continuous in nature. On the other hand, we also have a list of offenses at 3D1.2D that we specifically exclude from the application of this rule. Um, let's just take a look at those types of offenses, robbery, assault, kidnapping, uh, criminal sexual abuse, these types of things. The one thing you'll notice about these offenses is that they do not represent ongoing or continuous behavior. They actually represent separate and distinct harms for uh, each individual offense. That's right. So let's take a look now at specifically what Rule D says under the guidelines. And what Rule D says to us is that when you are grouping under Rule D... So people are always going to need two things. A place to stay and something to drive. It's guaranteed. When people worry about the pandemic, y'all still getting Instacart, Amazon Prime now, mm -hmm. Uber and Lyft drivers still cranking up. You know why? Because guys like me giving them the cars. <laughs> I love it. What's going on, family? David Chance. I want to give you a special invitation to The Morning Meetup. TheMorningMeetup.com. It is the only organization that gathers every single morning, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, and we help you learn entrepreneurship, grow as an entrepreneur, become an entrepreneur, or you just get to be in an environment, a network of all entrepreneurs. Literally hundreds of entrepreneurs gather on a Zoom call every single morning, Monday through Friday, okay? So I want to give you a special invitation to help grow your business and your brand all this year, okay? Every single day. You eat every day for the for your health. You brush your teeth every every day for your hygiene. I need you to learn and grow every single day um, for your mindset, okay? So make sure you go to themorningmeetup.com. It is only $1 um, trial. You don't need a promo code. Just go $1 
themorningmeetup.com. Check it out. If you like us, stay. If not, after that, it's $79 a month, but I'm pretty sure you're going to enjoy yourself, okay? So go to themorningmeetup.com. I love y'all. See you in the morning. The Social Food Podcast. Streaming now on all platforms. All platforms. I'm ready. Let's, let's get this party All started. Right. Let's go. Listen, welcome to another edition of the Social Proof Podcast, man, where we find people who have documented success. You know, uh, they can go out and teach it, man. I am... You, you don't know it, but I've been waiting all week for this interview, bro. Oh, man. Me and you both. Bro. I'm not going to lie to you. Sweaty hands and all. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Let's get to it, baby. So we got, uh, I got in the car, uh, car rental games. Shouts out to Maddie J. For sure. And um, we were at, for one, I, I wasn't 100% sure. I didn't know you did, like, the car rental game. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. But then we started talking at the bowling alley, and I am wowed, bruh. Like, yo, you wow. I'm sitting there with my jaw dropped. Like, I appreciate what? that. What? I appreciate that. Things that I've never even thought of. So um, I'm really excited about this, man. Man, me too. I've been waiting for this. Matter of fact, before the wedding thing, I was like, I was so hyped up for last week. I was like, I'm about to go in there with my boy Dave and go crazy. <laughs> I was like, it's about to go digital. But it's dope, man. I'm I'm glad that you have all of this space. I'm just looking around. I told you, I feel like I'm in like Madison Square Garden. <laughs> I'm like, my boy is doing their major. And they can't see how cool your whole space look. But this is crazy. <laughs> Bruh. Wow. Keep doing your thing, my G. Man, I appreciate this you, is man. This is doper than anything I've ever done. I'm just like... <laughs> I'm hype. I'm hype. I'm a regular bull. I'm a regular dude. I'm from Philly. I'm a regular bull. Like, I'm out here Yo. like, you know what I'm saying? So, Yo, so I wasn't what? supposed to be here. You know what I'm saying? Man, we, 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 we got it. First off, just go on and introduce yourself, man, because right. we dive um, right in. So, uh, clearly, I'm Pushman Mitch. Uh, I, I own a, the biggest rental car agency in Atlanta. If not the biggest, the second biggest. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I leverage social currency. I teach financial literacy. I teach, I, I take, I take millionaires and I make it feel like they're regular. Cause I could, ter- I could teach a regular person how to become a millionaire if they let me. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So my goal now is just, other than to retire my mom this year, mm-hmm. I want to make a million millionaires. So if I touch that guy who touches that guy who touches that guy and th- and they got their family getting money, sure. that's what I'm about. So like I was telling you before we started on live, I got to give my boy Clay to be a millionaire. It's guaranteed. I promise guaranteed. you. Guaranteed. What's the formula? What the, formula the formula is understanding that if you can sell a product for $1,000 to 1,000 people, you can make a million dollars. So if you can do that times 10, then you can make 10 million. You know what I'm saying? And people, when you break it down to the smallest point, it's easy. It's not even hard, not easy, but it's simple. It's simple, you get not what I'm easy, it's gonna take work. Yeah, it's gonna take work, because uh, a lot of people want instant gratification. So that's the social media thing, right? Yeah. They see me at Lambo, so they're like, oh, I wanna get the course so I can get a Lambo. <laughs> right, right. I'm like, that's Z though, that's not A. Right, right. Start from A, go to V, C, D, Make the bumps and bruises so you know what you're doing when you get the Z. Mm. Why would you want to just start off with a Lambo? You're going to start off with a Lambo, crash it, and now you're done. Right. You get what I'm saying? Get you some Toyota Priuses, crash them up, learn the formula, insurance, how to pay for that, and now you got a Lambo, no-brainer. Oh, 
Oh, Easy. Okay, okay. okay. Slow down. Me? Slow down. Nah, man. for real. <laughs> hey, look. Hey, I can't go in public Yo, like civilians, man. for real. This, this is king of car rentals right here. And I, how many cars do you have? Uh, 43 for myself, but I have a network of 150. So, like I told you, if you take my course, you understand that I don't only have hold to on, own it. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You have 43 cars. 43. And a network of how many? Of 150 and still building. So, explain the network of 150. So, what I do... What's going on, YouTube? Come back at you another video. So, we got some breaking news. Rapper... OMB PZ has been arrested for the shooting that took place in Atlanta recently. If you didn't hear the news, Roddy Rich and 42 Doug were on set shooting a music video. Three people ended up being shot. There wasn't many details at the time. There was nobody arrested. Now OMB PZ has been charged. I'm going to show you what his um, charges are. He's been arrested for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, as well as possession of a firearm during a felony. So OMBPZ clearly going to be facing some serious time during this incident. Three people were shot. Nobody lost their life, thankfully. But there was multiple injuries. Um, OMB Peasy now. A lot of people on the internet reacting to this all over his Instagram. You see people saying free OMB Peasy. Um, sad situation. We see this all too often. Hopefully OMB Peasy is not guilty of the crimes he's being accused of. Because if he is, there's a good chance he's probably going to go to prison for quite a while. Um, gotta be smarter, gotta move better, gotta stay out of the streets in 2021. There's nothing left in the streets for anybody. He's claiming his innocence though. Um, be sure that you at least give him the um, benefit of the doubt that he's innocent until this all plays out in court. Let me know what you guys think in the comments though. Hit the like, subscribe, share. Leave some feedback. Make sure you ring the notification bell too if you're subscribed so you get updates my future videos when they drop. Before you leave, please take just one second too to click the link. I'm going to pin as the top comment. It's going to take you to a dope artist out there trying to get his YouTube channel monetized. He's almost there. Please click the link and subscribe. It costs you absolutely nothing. I definitely do appreciate you watching though. Peace. Success, which would include in this instance, pursuing the internal process that we would refer to, uh, but only if you meet those requirements. If you clearly don't meet those requirements, it doesn't make any sense even to pursue the internal process. For instance, if you haven't served 50%, if you just entered prison, you don't have any medical conditions and there are no cases in the prison, I wouldn't waste a lot of time with the internal process. Uh, if you meet one or more of the- Right okay. there. Let's just continue right there. You wouldn't waste time 
trying to lobby through that Bureau of Prisons, does that mean you would then turn your attention to going to federal court or you would just not do anything? It would depend on how many other factors you have working in your favor. I was about to say, if you have one or more working in your favor, either a medical condition compromising one's immune system, uh, you are of, of an elderly age and or you've served 50% of more of your time, one or more of those conditions, I would pursue both the compassionate release and the 2241 approaches, once again, because they're filed in two different courts. How about a case like Michael Avenatti, who is, uh, you're familiar with that case? Yes, I am. And Michael Cohn as well. And neither of those people are 60 years old, and neither of those people serve 50% of their time. Both of them are going to home confinement. Very interesting. I was very surprised. But so what, so what I would find in that is that if you don't try, nothing happens. If you try, the odds may be 1%, but you're trying. That's, that's true. Yeah, that is very true. And, and so, you know, I, I don't know that the, the right answer, I think every answer has to be on an individual basis, but it sure is helpful to know that, that people have a resource like you that they can ask these kinds of questions. And we did receive a question from a, from a young woman who's advocating on behalf of her son. Um, she asked, how, how long would it take you to prepare documents that would help her son? or potentially have, help her son? I have prepared a detailed process sheet which, which uh, involves, a, is basically a, a detailed questionnaire, the answers to which provide me with the information in full that I will need to file both a 2241 petition and a compassionate release motion. From the moment I receive that, those answers in full on that process sheet, I can file within one day. Now, that doesn't mean we will because the process is I will send the documents to the client for review and the client ultimately will send in the documents, but the documents would be ready for filing within 24 hours. All of the templates for these have been created. Uh, I've done a number of these cases in the last several weeks and at this point, what changes the document are the specific answers to the questions that we've created in the process sheet. Well, that's very, that's very helpful. I'm sure that'll be very helpful for, for any listener. And if anybody wants to get a hold of David, I will be very happy to pass along his, his contact information. And, and David, we'd love to just, you know, have an ongoing dialogue with you on matters related to, uh, you know, what your experiences were while going through 11 years in prison. And uh, I want to just thank you for giving us your time this evening. Is there anything you'd like to say to the group? Well, I'd like to also say to the group that I'd like to be back and also keep you all apprised of developments as I hear them from inside the prisons from my current clients who are reporting to me on a regular basis, particularly on this COVID situation, which is so fluid. Uh, There is a lot of very... Interesting, I would say, but oftentimes disturbing information I'm getting back from the inmates insofar as the lack of testing for staff in particular 
And those staff who are many times asymptomatic are, are likely to be bringing in, in many instances, the COVID virus to the inmate population. So that's very, very concerning and it continues on an ongoing basis today. So the name of our group is Prison Professors and David clearly is somebody who has gone through 11 years plus in prison, is, is eminently qualified as a prison professor and just want to uh, um, make it clear that, that, that our role is to help people understand what strategies that they can pursue, but at the end of the day, it's their choice on whether to pursue it or not. Um, my experience of going through 26 years in prison was always to be a, a self-advocate and to, to try and get the best possible outcome. David, I, I, I trust that you feel the same way. I do, Michael, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your listeners this evening. Excellent. So, so his name is David. He's part of the Prison Professors team. And if you want to connect with David, please let us know. Um, I'm sure that uh, Justin can connect you and uh, you'll, you'll have an opportunity to learn from somebody who's got a, an immense amount of knowledge, both about the dust, because now we're looking at two different guidelines. We're looking at 2S1.1 and 2S1.2 and trying to see if we can group these and base these on an aggregate under Rule D. They are both listed there. But as you will learn later in the broadcast, it doesn't necessarily mean that when, some, when two counts are listed as groupable under Rule D, that you are going to use Rule D for grouping those counts together. However, in the first 10 counts of 2S1.1, if you are applying relevant conduct correctly and you're using your expanded relevant conduct, you know that when you go to the 2S1.1 guideline for the first time, your expanded relevant conduct is going to aggregate the value of the funds laundered. And that is the primary determinant of the offense level under 2S1.1. How much money was laundered during this offense? So when you go there for the first time, you're going to aggregate the total amount of laundered funds that equals 2.5 million, and therefore you have grouped counts 1 through 10 under Rule D. Now let's take a look at counts 11 through 15, violations of Title 18, Section 1957. This guideline, 2S1.2, also considers the value of the funds laundered. This guideline is also listed as groupable under Rule D. So when you go to 2S1.2 for the first time, you are going to, using your relevant conduct analysis and your expanded relevant conduct, you are going to aggregate again the value of the funds that were laundered in counts 11 through 15 for a total of $150,000. Now, because both of these offenses are listed at Rule D, and when you consider relevant conduct, when you are looking at, let's say, 2S1.1 for the first time, the court could make a determination that the 2S1.1 counts, in addition to the 2S1.2 counts, are part of the same course of conduct 
or common scheme or plan as the offense of conviction, which would allow you to aggregate all of the funds laundered in all 15 counts. So the court could determine that they are part of the same course of conduct or common scheme or plan and the value of the funds from all 15 counts should be added and applied to the guideline that produces the highest offense level, which in this case is 2S1.1. So there we see a different example where you're using two guidelines that aren't the same but are similar, where you can use that to aggregate the conduct under one guideline one time. Now I want to jump in here and make a point off of that point that you just made that just because a guideline is listed at 2D1.1 as being groupable or subject to the expanded relevant conduct doesn't necessarily mean that you can group all of those counts together. What I mean by that is this. What you have to do sometimes is look at and evaluate the, the individual guidelines mm -hmm. and determine what is the characterization of the money involved. Right. For example, if you have two counts of conviction, one being a fraud count at 2F1.1 and the other being a tax count at 2T1.1, you have to examine those guidelines and what is the, the characterization of the money in those guidelines. The loss definition at 2F1.1 is the value of the property taken, damaged, or destroyed. Mm -hmm. Well, the determination for the money or the tax loss at the tax guideline is different. There are any number of formulas that you have to compute in order to determine what the tax loss is. So thinking back to the rule when applying um, or grouping counts pursuant to Rule D, you're going to be applying one guideline one time. Well, in a situation where you have a fraud count and a tax count, how are you going to aggregate the amount of monies involved in both of those counts and then plug that into one guideline? Well, and the simple answer is you're not able to do that because the two loss tables, if you look at those two guidelines, are also different. And so there's no mechanism for applying one guideline one time based on the aggregate amount of monies in, in both of those counts of conviction. On the other hand, um, just because a, a an offense, excuse me, is listed as excluded from grouping at Rule D mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it can't be grouped pursuant to some of the other rules, A, B, or C. So having said that, maybe we should move on with the discussion of some of our other grouping rules. Exactly. One thing that we need to point out before we get to grouping under rules A, B, or C is that the operation of these grouping rules differs from the operation of grouping under Rule D. We have repeated again and again that when you're grouping multiple counts under Rule D, you apply one guideline one time. Well, grouping under Rules A pretty complicated pretty fast on you. There's rules and there's exceptions to the rules, but you're always driving to the sentencing table 
as we talked before, the criminal history category going one through six. And those little numbers in paren, zero or one, criminal history category one, two or three, and so forth, are criminal history points. They're not necessarily uh, the number of convictions. These are points that are uh, accumulated uh, via chapter four under the criminal history rules. And you get these points based on uh, prior sentences, based on uh, the defendant's status. Also, this idea of recency. You just got out of prison fairly recently and you're sort of, the defendant's sort of back at it again. We're saying you're gonna get extra points. The defendant's gonna get extra points under this idea of recency. And you'll see some types of offenses that are never counted. For example, foreign sentences, uh, tribal court sentences, uh, court martials, even juvenile status offenses, for example. Now, under the guidelines, juvenile convictions are countable, potentially, but not juvenile status offenses. You know, possession of alcohol by a minor would be an example of a juvenile status offense. And it works like this. You get three points if the sentence is greater than 13 months, two points if it's greater than 60 days or equal to 60 days up to 13 months, and one point for all others. And you'll see this time period. So if you have a a three-pointer, you got a two-year prison sentence. It's a three-pointer. You have a time period. It has to be within 15 years of the sentence. You'll see a notation, imposition, or release. What that means, you, you look at when that offense occurred and then count back 15 years. And if that prior sentence occurred within that 15 years, you're going to meet the requirements of that time period. If that prior sentence occurs before that 15-year period and the defendant got a prison sentence and was released within that 15-year time period, it's also countable. Okay, these time periods are important to keep in mind. So this is for prior offenses committed at 18 or older. These are adult um, prior sentences. And I'm, as I mentioned earlier, you also count sentences that occurred before uh, age 18. And it's a little bit different. Here you get, you get a three-pointer if uh, only if convicted as an adult and the sentence has to be greater than 13 months. And it's the time period is within 15 years of the sentence and position or release. A two-pointer for greater or equal to 60 days up to 13 months. You have a time period there within five years and a one-pointer for all others. Now, there's some other important determinations you sort of have to be mindful of as you do the criminal history rules, and we can't point them all out for you, but the key ones, especially for you new folks, the key ones to be looking at is the relationship of prior sentences and uh, relevant conduct under 41.2A1, it says the term prior sentence means any sentence previously imposed 
upon adjudication of guilt for conduct not part of the instant offense. If you had a drug case, for example, where you had relevant conduct from a prior sentence being included in, in the current offense conduct, okay, you're going to include that in the offense and not count it as, prior, as a prior sentence. It gets a little complicated, but, you know, on that point, but the basic rule is if it's part of the instant offense, if you pulled that conduct out of a state sentence and put it into the, the current offense to do the guideline calculation, you're going to include it um, as, uh, you're not going to include it as a, a prior uh, sentence. The other point is uh, related prior cases. Related cases are treated as one sentence for purpose of the criminal history calculation. On page 293 of the guidelines manual, 41.2A2 says prior sentences imposed in unrelated cases are to be counted separately and prior sentences imposed in related cases are uh, treated as one sentence, one sentence for purposes of uh, 41.1. If, if a defendant comes in for a, in a prior sentence and there's two or three cases all sentenced on the same day, for example, they, they could be sort of grouped together, you know, into one sentence and, and have one set of criminal uh, history points for that uh, prior sentence. So you want to be mindful to take a look at related cases. The other point you want to be mindful of are prior revocations of supervision. Sort of like the question, well, how do, how do the guidelines treat a, a prior sentence where there was also a, a probation sentence where then the probation... How to raise your credit score by 200 points. Did you know that at one point I had a 558 credit score and in just a matter of weeks I had it over 770? Yes, I literally got my credit score increased by over 200 points and now it's over 800. I'm going to share with you exactly what I did and how you can do it too. Let's go. No way. She can fix that. If you gotta get it done, no, you need to do it better. Well, she can fix that. Yeah, she can fix that. Investment to get back, trying to get a big step. She can fix that. Let's fix that. So, when we are talking about credit, we are talking about personal credit scores. Many of you guys may be aware that there are three credit bureaus that report personal credit you have Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian. Those three credit bureaus will report all of the trade lines for all of the debts that you've taken out. For example, if you have student loans, if you have credit cards, if you have a car loan, if you have a mortgage, all of those different things will report on your credit report as a trade line. They'll report when you open the account, how much you owe them, what the payments are, how well you pay them, and basically all of the information regarding that account. You also want a mix of different accounts. You don't want all credit cards because those are considered revolving accounts. 
You also don't want just a car loan or a couple car loans because those are installment accounts. You really want a nice mix of the different types of accounts that exist and you want to make sure that you are paying everybody on time. Those are the main things when it comes to personal credit. So let me get into how you increase that score. So step one, the first thing that you want to do when we're talking about increasing your personal credit scores, you need to know what your credit score is. Now, many times I know you've heard that you can get your credit report absolutely free. You can go to sites like annualcreditreport.com and get a free copy of your credit report annually. However, you will not get your real credit score by getting that free report. You're going to have to pay a little bit of money to actually see what your FICO score is. I'm going to give you a link below to a company called myfico.com. I have found that they are an excellent resource for pulling my credit, pulling my students and my other clients' credits, and it's very accurate to what their real FICO scores are. I'm telling you a secret, but I've really found that Credit Karma and a couple of the other ones, their scores are not necessarily as accurate as my FICO has been into what some of the lenders are seeing. So if you want to get your credit score and you want to get your credit score up, you got to know where you start, so go ahead and pull that credit report and pay a little bit of money to find out what your credit score is so that we can go from there. So when it comes to personal credit, there is a major problem that many people have already found, and this is one of the things that I found. As I started using a lot of my credit cards, my credit score started to go way down, but I needed to use my personal credit in order to build my business. So I'll take you back. Many of you guys know that I started investing in real estate around 2002, 2003, and I was a complete disaster. I ended up losing everything, and ended up back in my parents' basement with multiple foreclosures and bad credit. I was a disaster. But while I was in my parents' basement, I learned something called wholesaling. I learned how to find people with property problems, and I learned how to get those properties under contract and then flip those contracts to other investors for a fee. I literally started making five and $10,000 per deal, and I was able to get myself out of my parents' basement. The problem is I still kind of had bad credit. I would pay off some of my debts, and I started paying down things and trying to get myself back into position but I still had a very low credit score because of all of the foreclosures and the bankruptcies that were on my credit report. So when I was looking to increase my credit score, I had to get creative. One of the things that I did was I got someone to sponsor me. So many of you guys know that you can find someone to put you as an authorized user on their credit cards. I did this and my credit score increased by over a hundred points. I literally was able to ask my dad if he would put me on some of his credit cards. I knew he had very good credit, but I knew he wasn't going to like co-sign for me or anything like that. So I simply asked if he could put me on his credit cards as an authorized user, especially credit cards that had no balance and a very high credit limit. For example, 
had an American Express that had like an $8,000 limit or something like that, and he didn't carry a balance on it, meaning he never really used the card, and he had had that card for like seven or eight years. So when he added me to that account, they started reporting that on my personal credit report as an authorized user, and my credit score increased. He did that on about five or six of his credit cards, and that was how I was able to get my credit score up 100 points. So that's how you get your first 100 points. You need to find a sponsor. You need to find someone with very good personal credit. Send everything out so you don't have no problems. You get yourself a W-2 at the end of the year. You want that. Trust me. <laughs> don't be like me in the past where I learned from that mistake, okay? Now... You have to pay yourself a reasonable salary. What is a reasonable salary? Well, if you look up on the IRS rules, they have, cert they have certain rules around what a reasonable salary is. It can be based upon expertise, how much money the business generates, um, uh, the, the economy, where you're low. It's a lot of things that are involved in this, okay? When it comes to reasonable salary. That's why you want to talk to a um, a legal or a, a financial professional to be able to discuss what a reasonable salary is based off your business. I'm just giving you an example here. Now, the example I'm going to give you is I'm going to say out of this $100,000 in net, I only want, I want 50% of that to, to be paid out as a reasonable salary to me. So I'm going to take a salary of 50,000 and I'm going to have the other 50,000 being paid out as a distribution to me. The distribution is still going to come to me. I just want it to be done differently. And I'll, I'll talk about why. The reason why is because on your reasonable salary of $50,000, you have to pay self-employment tax on that reasonable salary, okay? So, now that I'm only taking a salary of 50,000, my self-employment tax, that 15.3%, instead of it being $15,300 that I'm paying on the whole, on the entire 100K, I'm now only paying $7,650 in self-employment tax because my salary is only $50,000. You get it? 50,000, 15.3%, $7,650 in self-employment tax instead of 15,300 because the entire 100 grand I'm breaking it up into reasonable salary. Now, what happens to that other $50,000 in net? I'm paying it to me as a distribution. That's one of the advantages of having an S-Corp. You can pay a distribution to yourself. That distribution that you pay to yourself, there is no self-employment tax on the distribution. So now that there's no self-employment tax on the, 50, on the distribution, I'm getting the 50,000 bypassing that 15.3% in tax. I still have to pay, of course, the federal, the state, local, and et cetera taxes on that 50000 I'm bypassing that 15.3%, though, that becomes expensive to me over time as I start to make more money. So now, no, uh, no self-employment tax on that other $50,000, $0 in SC tax. So now I only have to pay $7,650 because I distributed it out. Now, I know what you're probably saying to yourself. Well... Don, why don't I 
if I can bypass the self-employment tax of the 15.3%, why don't I just pay out my entire amount as a distribution? I know you're probably thinking that as an entrepreneur because, look, I would think the same thing. Mm, 15.3%, I've paid out as the distribution. Trust and believe me, the IRS keeps a very close eye on that. And that's why they say reasonable salary. Because if you start paying, if you try to abuse this rule, and out of this 100000 you say, you know what, I'm only going to take a reasonable salary of ten of $10,000 or 10% of this, and the other 90% is going to be a distribution, I can guarantee you're going to get flagged. Almost guarantee it. You don't abuse this here, right? So I say 50-50. There's others online that say 60-40. Right. Some people, it depends. Talk to your talk to a professional. Right. But you want to make sure that it's a reasonable salary. I'm going 50 50. I'm being modest here. OK, don't abuse this rule. They put this in place for a reason because they know people are going to try to bypass and pay out an entire distribution of themselves to bypass the 15.3 percent in tax. Right. So. That's the reason why, as an entrepreneur, don't try to get, don't try to do any funny business here, right? 50, 50% goes reasonable, the other 50% goes distribution, cool, I'm able to bypass. Now, if we talk about it from a savings perspective now, remember, between my $15,300 that I'm paying in self-employment tax on this entire 100K, plus that 25% that I'm paying in federal and state taxes, I'm paying about $36,000 over here as an LLC that's taxed as a, as a sole prop. But now, since I'm an S-Corp, I'm only paying $7,650 in self-employment tax, and I'm bypassing the self-employment on that other $50,000. And I still got to pay my federal and state taxes, right, which is still going to be $20,000 over here. Same thing. But the difference is now, instead of me paying $36,000, I'm actually paying about $28,000 in taxes on this side. So now that I'm only paying $28,000 on this side, and I'm going to write this down. Now that I'm only paying $28,000 on this side, instead of actually paying $36,000 on this One defense to sale of a drug would be entrapment. And that would be if the police or law enforcement agents induce someone who otherwise was not predisposed to engage in a transaction to do so. An example of entrapment in a, in a sale of drugs scenario would be uh, medical marijuana. Uh, we've seen here in Las Vegas where law enforcement operatives will contact medical marijuana dispensary providers in California and offer them a price for medical marijuana that's far greater than what they could get in California. And then they in turn come here, deliver marijuana to the state of Nevada, and they get arrested for sale of marijuana. That would be a scenario where we might have a good argument that a person who otherwise was not predisposed to engage in a sale, was induced or entrapped by the price that local law enforcement was willing to pay. Another defense to the sale of narcotics is that you were not the seller. We often come across situations where someone may be a drug user 
and they're in an area where drugs are being sold, but the prosecution is unable to establish beyond a reasonable doubt that our client was the one actually doing the selling of the drugs. If you were merely present, that is not enough to find you liable for this charge. They just don't. They're laborers, and we're going to cash some of their checks. And he goes, okay, that makes sense. Leaves, comes back. Finally comes back, and I said, hey, what's going on? You know, and he says, listen, he said, uh, I just, we're just doing a series of checks on, to verify things. And I go, okay. And he says, uh, I said, well, what are you doing? He goes, well, we're trying. He said, we, it turns out that this check was issued uh, by, on, a, on a house owned by a Michael Shanahan. And I was like, right, right. And he goes, he said, right, so we're just trying to verify uh, that Michael Shanahan issued the check. That's all. Well, there's a real Michael Shanahan. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> well, that's not good. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So he leaves. Becky calls. What's going on? They're trying to call Michael Shanahan. She's like, get out of the bank. And I'm like, I can't. This guy's got my shit. I leave the bank for sure. They're calling the cops. I have to wait. Hang up the phone. A minute later, my phone rings. I look at it. I don't recognize the number. I pick it up, and I go, hello. And there's a woman like, hi, this is Kimberly from SunTrust Bank. Is this Michael Shanahan? I'm like, yes, it is. And she goes, hi, uh, we have someone here at the bank trying to cash a cashier's check uh, that was drawn on your, your, on your, uh, from the title company. And I'm like, okay. And they said, uh, what was, do you, you know, who was the, how much was the amount for? I said, yeah, there was Scott Cugno. It was 30, about $29,000 even, I think. And she says, that's right, Mr. Thank you very much, Mr. Shannon. I said, hey, how did you get my number? Because if you called information, you would have got his real number. And, and I go, how did you get my number? Oh, we called the title company. They looked on the application that I had filled out, and I'd used the cell number. And they said, we just got it off of there. I hope it's okay. No problem. No problem. Okay, thank you. Boom. Hang up the phone. Five minutes later, still, the guy comes out with some woman, counts out the money to me, gives me the money. I stand up, and he says, Mr. Cugno, I would like to um, say that I feel very uncomfortable about this transaction. And I said, well, what is it exactly? And he goes, you know, I can't put my finger on it. And I said, well, I'm, it'll come to you. <laughs> and I walk off. Listen, I was terrified. Fucking terrified. I like to think that when the Secret Service showed up, you know, five, six days later, a week later, he realized I was This is in New York City. Hey, Chris, how can we help? Hey, Dave, hey, Ken. Uh, great to be on the show. Thanks. How can we help? Yeah, um, uh, real quick, I just want to give a shout-out to my girlfriend, Maria Jose. She told me to call in. Um reason I'm calling is because I've got a lot of friends who are buying into cryptocurrency, and, you know, my investments are all in mutual funds like you recommend. Um, and I'm hearing about, you know, Bitcoin, dog or Dogecoin and all these other things. And I, I just wanted your thoughts on how to respond when people try to pressure you to invest into this stuff and maybe even get your thoughts on cryptocurrency in general. Okay. 
I wouldn't do it. Why? Because I think it's still very speculative. We've already seen big highs and big lows, and I think it's still rocky. I do think that crypto is coming to stay. I think right now it's a lot of speculation. And until it gets adopted and we start seeing businesses move that way, I'd I'd stay on the sidelines. And it's not a part of our investment strategy at Ramsey Solutions either. So there, there's that, too, which, Dave, you're far more versed in that well, than they, I am. But know, I it's had, an, it's had an incredible year. Yeah. People made a lot of money out this year, without yeah. a doubt. No question about that. Um, but they make a lot of money on cocaine, too. <laughs> um, right. And they make a lot of money on, uh, you know, playing futures. And they make a lot of money at, at the blackjack table. And they make a lot of money betting football. But these are not investment strategies. That's correct. These are these are uh, things that you can jump into or jump out of that are uber unbelievable high risk, mm-hmm. and so the problem is is that people don't perceive the risk in Bitcoin, and it's there. It's 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 a it's not a, it's not fully adopted. They made a lot of money this year. Made a lot of money in gold a few years ago too. I'm telling people not to buy gold, and all the gold bugs are going. Dave Ramsey's an idiot. He doesn't understand. No, Dave Ramsey completely understands. I've lost my butt in a bunch of high-risk investments over the years. I quit doing it. I don't like having to start over. It's too expensive. So if you want to start over, play crap that's high-risk. If you don't want to start over, do what you're doing. But you're not going to convince friends who are making a bunch of money that they're stupid. Just let them be stupid and smile. It's okay. What better... And to connect with somebody who's gonna who embraces the boss culture of be your own boss. Right, right. How'd you, how'd you connect with him? So what I did was, I got on Instagram. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me what made me do it. I don't know. I found a good video of mine talking my talk. I was talking about trust, and I said I'm gonna give a mentorship spot away. And I'm going to take you on a private jet with me to our next meetup. Mm-hmm. If you tag Rich Forever as many times as possible. Jeez. Listen, I had 6,600 comments. I had to stop it. I, I got the meeting within 48 hours. Wow. 24 hours, his team contacted me. I met with one of his team members, sat down, and the same thing you said. They had to make sure it wasn't a scam. I said, listen, I don't do anything for nobody. I teach people how to fish. I'm not fishing for you. I'm teaching you how to fish. Your business is up to you what you handle and execute. I just teach you how to fish. Mm -hmm. That's it. I'm just not done for you services. I'm not doing anything for you. Not promise you anything. You're going to come and learn how to work. I'm going to give you my blueprints on how I make money and how I work. Right. And then I broke some of them down to him. He said, okay. He left. He called me. At, I was on, a, on my Zoom call teaching. He said, yo, Rose said, tomorrow morning, 9.30. Come to the crib. Come to the crib. Was you nervous? <laughs> Extreme. <laughs> right? I feel like a kid. Right. You, it's Rose. Right. It's Rose. Right? Like. In my mind, I, 06 Ross Port of Miami came out. Yeah. You gotta understand, this is like my whole adult life. Ross been that dude. Yeah, yeah. 
So we, I'm going, and and homie come in the room, right? So they open, they listen, they open the door for him, and it's like everybody back up and pull. Hold on, at his crib. Yes, listen, they pulled. I'm sitting in the room, and they pull the doors open for him. His tray set out. His 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 amenities is set there. All his brands is laid out. They pull the door open for me. He walking with stuff, homie, right? And and we start talking. And as I'm talking, he's looking down and he started talking to me like he was rapping. What you mean? He like yo. He like. He was like yeah. He was like see, if Rose get on it, you understand what's gonna happen. Like you understand what's coming with that. Mm-hmm. He was like, is this Ross? <laughs> That's all. All your yo, songs start playing in your head. Like, yo, listen, right here. Yo, and he sit here, and the way he hit it, like, man, it's Rose. Like, then he get in, he get to going laughing, and we talk. <laughs> we had a thirty minute meeting. We lasted an hour and a half. Mm. So now he's slapping the table. He's talking to me, breaking stuff down, and I'm listening to him. And I'm going, my man, whole persona of everything that I hear on these raps, he's doing it now. Mm. Them, huh? Like he's yeah. doing it. Like, right. and I'm like, yo, this is crazy. I'm sitting uh, here with like my with one of my idols, like, uh, and I had this meeting and go back and forth. It was just dope, like. That's what's up. It was legendary. And, yeah. and, and I, I, I know that's just the start. And I, I know, I know you got a busy day, man. So um, yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to keep you too long. But um, one, thank you again. Like I, I mean, I've learned so much, and you just got me like really thinking of a, 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 of other ways I can be smart about money. You know what I mean? Like at least yeah. sparking the conversation of. Like, who thinks to get a $200 car note, wrap that joint, and make $600 a month? Like, the, the principle is you get a liability turned into an asset and have it making you money. Oh. Right? People just don't think like that. You feel me? So I'm thinking, like, okay, where am I slipping? Like, so thank you. That's why we're recession-proof. Like, Absolutely. I like to uh, make predictions on the podcast, man. So um, I want to know where you see yourself in the next five to ten years so that we can look back at this five years from today. And I can say I have the footage of where Marcus said he was going to do this five years ago and look at him. Five to ten. I'm going to develop a financial literacy app that's going to be mandatory to put on every cell phone, on every Apple, either iPhone or Google Android. I'm going to make a financial literacy app that's going to be mandatory like they put stocks on every cell phone. I'm going to make the financial literacy credit monitoring app that will be on every phone. John is with us in Philadelphia. Hi, John. Welcome to the Dave Ramsey Show. Hey, Dave. Can you hear me? Sure. What's up? 
Hey, uh, kind of a simple question for you today. Um, I'm 22. I have no credit. Um, I was wondering if it was good as a beginner to get a small amount of credit, say 300 bucks or so, uh, with unsecured debt for credit worthiness, I guess. So you, you want to be worthy to borrow money and go in debt? Yes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's credit worthiness, right? Okay. Well, well, I didn't know because my dad always told me that it's an important thing, and then I started yeah. watching your show a couple months back, yeah. and I'm starting to realize, hmm, maybe it's, not, maybe it's not such an important thing, you know? So. But, John, not only, you're 22 and you don't have any. Why don't you have it? I don't know. I just never started. Well, that's a blessing in disguise, my friend. Yes. All right. That's, that's wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. So here's the thing. the You're right. The culture, including your dad, everybody says you need credit. Because everybody has been told by the banking industry for 75 years that the best way to become prosperous is borrow to buy the stuff you want. Uh-huh. Right? And so it's become culturally accepted that that's the way to go. However, that's a bill of goods sold to us by a villain known as the bank. Uh, Because it built large towers in our skylines, and they all have bank names on them. It didn't build a large tower in your living room, uh, because all your living room money from your dad went to that bank. Mm -hmm. And so the borrower is slave to the lender is a very real thing. And what we have discovered is the shortest, least risk path to wealth is to not have any payments. And then the question always comes up, well, don't I need to get some payments so that I have credit? Why? So that I can get some payments so that I have credit. Why? So that I can get some payments so that I have credit and debt. Why? And so the, the point being that um, we tell folks to, um, you know, stay out of debt because it's the shortest path to wealth. That's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And you already discovered that watching our videos, right? Yeah. Okay. And I understand it's countercultural, but if you look around the culture, most people are broke. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. And John, let me let you in on this. Um, I I worked in the industry, the banking world, for about 12 years and didn't understand really the FICO score until I joined Dave's team. And the FICO score measures how much debt you have, the type of debt you have, the likelihood that they'll give you more debt, and how you've paid debt. There's a theme there. And that it's not a matter of how wealthy you are or how well you're doing. It's how you're doing with debt. So, no, sir, you don't need to bring on any debt in your life. I love the fact that you've avoided it at 22 and want to continue to encourage you to avoid it like the plague. Like the plague. There is nothing positive that's going to come from it. And I promise you, your mailbox is going to start to get some offers. You're going to start to see it and be more aware of it. And I want you to have that mindset ready. Because as soon as you let your guard down, that's when stupid will creep in. Yeah, stupid will sneak up on you. Yes. 
I'm a big YouTuber. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, uh, Prince James, this is from the New York Post. Ran across your Crown TV news show on YouTube. Found it riveting. I want to shout out Crown TV Courts. Shout out to Crown TV. Crown TV Courts. Check out my homie Prince, you know what I'm saying? They cover all high-profile court cases on behalf of the people. Nobody else in the media is covering this case. All the information that's coming out is pretty much coming from Crown TV. I think that it's amazing that a black man is sitting on a platform breaking down the law. That is beautiful. I applaud that, and I think it's dope as yeah, what's poppin', y'all? Welcome back to Crown TV Course, brought to you by Crown TV, sponsored by Hoosier Taxman. HoosierTaxman.com. This is a company based out of California, but they service the entire United States. It's tax season, y'all. Don't be like Drizzy. Get your tax affairs in order. Alright, y'all. Now, a lot of people have been asking for this video, and we have the ability to make it, so I figured why not? This channel kind of missed the boat on this case because we didn't exist and because there was nobody covering it. A lot of people either don't know the case exists or those that do don't have the details. So we're going to run through this case real quick and bring everybody up to speed. And we're talking about the federal case for Taxstone. This case was split into two different cases. The gun charge is federal, and then the trial that's coming up is state. So we're going to run through this thing, and we're going to start with the indictment. First of all, this case started in 2017. The complaint was filed in January. This indictment was filed in February. This case is still very much alive. Now, he's charged with two counts in this indictment. Count one is for being a felon in possession of a firearm, and count two is for the receipt of a firearm in interstate commerce. Here is the breakdown. Now, this is from the plea agreement, and I'm jumping around, but I promise y'all I got this thing laid out. So for count one, which is the being a felon in possession of a firearm, this has three elements to it. First, that he knowingly possessed a firearm. Second, that the possession of that firearm was in or affecting interstate commerce. This deals with the firearm crossing state lines. And third, that prior to possessing that firearm, he had a felony conviction, thus making him a felon in possession of a firearm. Now, count two, which is the receipt of a firearm in interstate commerce, has two elements. First, that the defendant shipped, transported, or received in interstate or foreign commerce a firearm. That again deals with the firearm crossing state lines. And second, that he did so with the intent to commit another felony. Now, both of these charges carry a max of 10 years, so he's facing 20 years. He pled out to both of these counts in June of 2017, and he still has not been sentenced. There's been a lot of motions, a lot of arguing, a lot of chicanery going on in this case, so that's why he has not been sentenced yet. This case is still very much alive. 
very quickly i want to run through some details in this case and then i want to show y'all something that deals with the character of taxstone now this is the government talking about what they would have produced at trial had taxstone not taken this plea it says the government would expect to present evidence including video dna evidence witness testimony and physical evidence to include a recovered firearm and ballistics showing that the defendant had received the firearm in question from outside of the state prior to May 25, 2016. That the defendant bought the firearm to a venue despite having previously been convicted of a felony where he used that firearm to fire one shot that killed Ronald McFadder and additional shots in the course of a confrontation. From another document, and before this, it talks about him not possessing the weapon at a business. It says he possessed at a crowded concert filled with innocent people. At least four shots, excuse me, five shots were fired from that weapon. Four struck people in this concert venue, wounding three and killing one. I'll get into the evidence in a second, but in addition to the evidence, in the complaint that the defendant possessed a firearm and possessed it at that location, the government will proffer that there's additional evidence which showed the defendant fire at least the initial shots from that weapon, including the fatal shot, which killed McFadder as detailed in the complaint. Second, as to the strength of the evidence, Your Honor, the evidence, especially under current charges, is overwhelming. You like them or don't like them. Uh, if you don't like them, then they're removed from office and then there's uh, somebody else appointed. It's not a contested election like the local judges, right, the state court right. or the and, trial court judges. And they're all nonpartisan, so there's no Republicans, there's no Democrats. All judges. All judges. Yeah, not Florida. just the appellate court ones. So. Okay, so six-year term. So what happens in the lower-level courts, the trial court, what happens that sometimes, because we see governors appoint some of those lower-level judges? Why is that? If those judges leave office before their six-year term is up, the governor has the option of appointing judges in their spots to finish out the term, and then they have to run for election. But initially, that first term, they get appointed. These, what we're talking about now, the method of appointment for the state governors, are all states like this or just Florida? Uh, Florida, not all states are the same, but okay. Florida, this is Florida. So how does the process work when the governor actually appoints these judges? Well, the way it starts is once a judicial vacancy occurs, then within 60 days of that, the, the Judicial Nominating Commission, and the Judicial Nominating Commission is uh, a group appointed in every circuit, or there's one for the Supreme Court, there's one for every district court of appeals, but there's a judicial nominating commission. There are nine people on the commission. The commission is totally appointed now by the governor, and that started in 2018. Before that, the Florida Bar appointed three, the governor appointed three, and those six appointed the other three. So who, who makes up that Judicial Nominating Commission? It's part lawyers and part <clears throat> non-lawyers. Uh, normally it's the majority are lawyers and the minority are non-lawyers. And they're, again, they're all appointed by the governor. 
The Florida Bar recommends four lawyers, and the governor appoints five other people, and they can be lawyers or non-lawyers. Who are the other people usually that are chosen for well, they the always, non-lawyers? Well, governors always seem to find some non-lawyer people, some supporters, some uh, spouses of supporters. Are they like um, businessmen and women? Are they professionals? Are they random people? Are they lobbyists? Who are they? All of the above. Okay. They can be anybody. Uh, uh, stock. When I served on the uh, Judicial Nominating Commission, we had a stockbroker. We had a stay-at-home mom. We had all sorts of, of people of different races, employments, everything sat on the commission. And what are those conversations like when you're on the commission between the lawyers and the non-lawyers? Do the lawyers dominate the discussion or do they explain how the process works? What is that like when you're sitting in the meetings? Well, actually, uh, it really is very good. Uh, The non-lawyers are very active and it's interesting. The lawyers are very influenced by the way non-lawyers view the, the judiciary and view lawyers. Makes sense. And they're very influenced and they want to pick people to be lawyers. For instance, these trial court judges, the circuit county, they see people all day, every day at their worst in some cases. Mm -hmm. And so these non-lawyers on the commission understand that and they want sympathetic people who understand what real people in real life is like. And not just lawyers, because sometimes lawyers get kind of isolated from the real world. Okay, so the governor appoints this general, the JNC is what we call it. So we'll probably just refer to it as the JNC from now on. So the governor appoints this JNC, and then how does the process take place from there? Then there's an advertisement. Any lawyer who wants can apply to be a judge. And you might get 60 or 70 or 80 people applying, and they fill out a long application, all their finances, everything they own, every, every time they voted, just everything is in this packet and it's sent to the nine members. Is it an application? Are they trying to convince you to pick them or is it just something they give you that's just raw data? It's raw data, but let's be honest with you, they make sure that raw data reflects why they would be good judges. Uh, Their work experience, all sorts of uh, family experiences are in there and they can put anything they want. We had some people put in a family album uh, into their application to show, you know, what great family people they were. We had uh, all sorts of stuff that, that's stuffed in there to, you know, bring it to our attention. Then the nine members meet, and we decide of that, let's say, 70 applications, who we're going to live interview. And we'll try to limit it to maybe 20 or 30 people of live interviews. Those 20 or 30 people are then brought in one at a time, and questioned by the nine members. So what happens after the live interviews with the JNC? Well, then the JNC meets those nine members. And that meeting, by the way, is not a government in the sunshine meeting. Uh, It's done in secret. And they sit around and discuss the candidates. They are then required to send to the governor a minimum of three and a maximum of six individuals that they feel are qualified to become judges. So they send those up to the governor for review. The governor either accepts them or rejects them. He does not have to accept that. Sometimes the governor has sent back the name, said, look, do another. Questions, you want to give them some further insight. Sure, Rusty. 
We would like to focus our questions today on questions that pertain to basic guideline application. However, if you have faxed in a question that we don't get to on our broadcast today, please feel free to call us on our helpline, which operates Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. The number for that is 202-502-4545. Let's go ahead and get started with the videotape and Frank Larry. Before we get started, just wanted to uh, make a couple of points about resources, you know, at the Sentencing Commission, about some of the things that you can uh, have access to. Now, I know the probation officers know a lot about our uh, helpline. We operate a helpline at the Sentencing Commission Monday through Friday from uh, 8.30 to 5 o'clock uh, Eastern Standard Time. And I can tell you, if you call us, We'll do as much as we can to answer your questions. The other resource I'm going to point out is our website, www.ussc.gov. On our website, we have a training and education section where we put up a lot of training materials, a lot of training documents. We, we do our best to keep it current. And we're always looking for ideas, too, about our website. I know a lot of you out there are internet savvy, in which case, please, you know, call. You can call me because I'm sort of uh, overseeing our guideline and education section on the uh, internet. But it's turned into a very popular spot for people to go to for information. In terms of all you're going to hear today, about how to apply the guidelines and how the guidelines work. Everything is going to be moving toward this sentencing table. Just as a snapshot, you have the offense level running down this axis, top to bottom, and the criminal history category goes the other way. It goes horizontally, categories one through six. So when you end up with a defense level at a, let's say, a 10 and a category 1 criminal history, basically no criminal history, we're at a guideline range of 6 to 12 months. And that's basically what the court has to use absent a departure up or down. Now, before we actually get into the sort of the, I call it sort of the guideline crunching, you know, all the numbers and everything. Let's talk about what we refer to as determining an appropriate sentence. And we talk about it in terms of a sort of like a two-step process. The first step being to determine the appropriate guideline range. And there's no substitute for that. You got to go in, do the application, get the guideline range. But we're also going to ask you to do sort of a second step, and that is to make what we call this refined assessment. It could be that, you know, there's a factor maybe the guidelines didn't take into account that might distinguish this case, take it out sort of the heartland of cases to make this case a little bit different that might justify, you know, um, 
a downward departure or possibly an upward departure. But we, we're asking you to sort of stand back and so that an appropriate sentence may be a sentence within the guideline range or it may be a departure because departures are part of the guideline system. They were intended to be part of the guideline system. We're not out telling everybody to just keep departing all the time from the guidelines. That's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is where there's a bona fide reason for departure, we're encouraging you to, to be mindful of this. Now, in 1984, the Sentencing Reform Act was placed into law. It made sweeping changes to the way federal sentencing was done. And what we went to was a system of determinate sentencing, basically doing away with parole. And as you know, there's no parole in the federal system anymore. But instead of you know the parole, the court actually can uh, impose periods of supervised release. It's similar to the parole, but under supervised release, if a, if a person violates the supervised release term, that person goes back to the judge under the current law, under the Sentencing Reform Act, as opposed to going back to the Parole Commission under the way the previous law worked. So you do have these terms of supervised release which follow a person's imprisonment term. They do their prison term, potentially then come out on a period of supervised release. You have probation officers who, uh, who are responsible for supervising people. Significant reduction in good time under the Sentencing Reform Act. Under the old law, most prisoners were eligible for at least a third off. Usually they were eligible for parole after a third of their sentence. Under the Sentencing Reform Act, that was reduced to uh, 54 days a year after the first year. Also, the Sentencing Reform Act specifically provided for repeal of a sentence under 37. Today we look at the two federal indictments for Cardi B's BFF Starbrim, and we look at Cardi B's actual charges in New York State Court. Together they're facing about 80 years in prison. Welcome to Hood Law. My name is Nate, former prosecutor, law enforcement officer, and law school lecturer, and welcome to Hood Law. Now, this is a show about the law and how it affects the hood. Today, we are going to look at the federal indictments of Star Brim, the alleged godmother of the Five Nine Brims. Now, who is Star Brim? Quick recap. Cardi B's best friend is facing charges tonight in a sweeping gang roundup. Starbrim, whose real name is Yannette Respass, was indicted on racketeering and assault charges. They say she was the highest-ranking woman in the 5-9 Brims gang. That's a subset of the Blood Street Gang. She's also accused of putting out a hit on a bartender she thought was having an affair with Cardi B's husband, Offset. In recent years, Brim has become a bit of a social media celebrity with nearly a million followers on Instagram. She also appears on Cardi's account regularly. So today, let's look at the facts and allegations that the government has put forward 
And we're also going to look at Cardi B's 12 charges. We could get her about a decade in prison. Starbrim has been indicted in both the Southern District of New York, that covers the Bronx and Manhattan, and the Eastern District of New York, which covers Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Both of Starbrim's indictments are RICO indictments. RICO stands for the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. Now, for those of you who don't understand how RICO works, here's a quick lesson. RICO doesn't go after individuals, but it goes after criminal organizations. See, just like any other company, you have groups of people carrying out various tasks. And you have people doing things like payroll and HR. And all of them are working in furtherance of the organization. Now, some people are motivated by their paycheck and other people are motivated to move up in the company. For example, I worked in the DA's office. Now, I was a prosecutor, but we also had an HR department. Now, I didn't know what they did in the HR and they didn't know what I did at my job. But we were all working together to further the goals of the DA's office. Now, in a corrupt organization, it's the exact same thing. You have some people working in prostitution, some people working in selling drugs, some people working in recruitment. But all of those people are working to further the organization. Now, this could be either your conventional street gang, like the Blood Street Gang, or this could be like the Mafia. Now, what RICO does is allows the government to hold everyone involved in a criminal organization accountable for the crimes committed in furthering that organization, from the people selling drugs to the people doing the recruiting. Now, even if the defendant is not aware of the other crimes being committed on behalf of the organization, they can still be held accountable. Now, because the government has to prove a defendant is part of a criminal organization for Regal to apply, it's extremely foolish to admit that you're involved in a criminal organization. What does Starbrim mean? It means my name is Star and I'm Blood. So that's oh, wow. Okay, I didn't know. <laughs> oh, that's right. The star <laughs> is star the sign for. Brim is the set I'm in. But Cardi did indeed tweet that she's actually Brim Blood, which amazingly isn't the name of one of Harry Potter's professors. Brim, not Nine Trey. I've never been Nine Trey or associated with them. So now let's talk about the timeline of events with Star, Brim, and Cardi B. So again, these are allegations. Federal prosecutors and state prosecutors allege that on October 15, 2018, members of the Five Nine Brims carried out a violent assault against bartenders at the Angel Strip Club in Flushing, Queens. Now, prosecutors allege that they carried this out because these two women didn't show the proper respect to another member of the gang. Now, most news reports will tell you that one of these women, one of these bartenders, was alleged to have slept with Cardi B's husband, Offset. Now, Star Brim, who was serving a federal prison sentence at the time, commissioned the younger members of the Blood Street Gang, and she called them drops. And she said to, quote, pop that bottle on the bartender, stating that I want hands put on them. I don't even want no talking. Now, that night, defendants Jeffrey Bush, Louis Love, Rodolfo Zambrano, and three of Respass's drops met at Angel, where they lured one of the bartenders across the bar, and while holding her by the hair, they began to beat her and throw bottles at her. Now, Bush recorded the assault on cell phone video, and the video was sent to other gang members on behalf of Respass, who allegedly ordered the attack. Respass is Starbrim. And again, this was all allegedly 
because one of these bartenders was sleeping with Cardi B's husband. So Starbrim was charged with conspiracy to commit assault in the aid of racketeering. And this was in the Eastern District of New York. And for that charge, she is facing 20 years in prison. So two weeks after that, Cardi B went to the same strip club. And then she allegedly ordered the bartenders to be beaten again. It's not uncommon at these types of festivals like Burning Man and the Electric Daisy Carnival that in order to get narcotics into the venue that one person in a large group will volunteer to carry substances that are going to be used by everybody. So you've got like a fall guy situation where maybe an individual is bringing in drugs that they're intending only to be for personal use, but because they have a certain quantity, it may look to law enforcement like they're possessing narcotics to sale. When in fact, they're merely being the one that stood up and said, I'll bring these items into the venue. So ultimately, prosecutors are certainly aware of what's going down at these festivals. As a matter of fact, prosecutors were young once too and like to have a good time. If you've been arrested at EDC or Burning Man, the chances are you've probably never been arrested before. And you probably think, oh my God, my life and my future are going to be destroyed. That's simply not true. Call us at 702 Defense. In most situations, these cases can be resolved in a way that will ensure that you don't have to pay a lifetime consequence because you just wanted to come to Nevada to have a good time. In February of 2019, Florida rappers YNW Melly and YNW Portland were put in prison for allegedly staging a drive-by shooting which killed rappers YNW Sack Chaser and YNW Juvie. According to police, on the night of October 26, 2018, shortly after leaving the recording studio, YNW Melly as well as YNW Borland gunned down their two best friends and shot up their vehicle, making it seem as if a drive-by shooting was the result of their deaths. After YNW Melly and YNW Borland's arrest on February 13th, their personal legal battles began. As the legal battles played out while they were in prison, their side of the story had publicly been released. YNW Melly and YNW Borland claimed that on the night of October 26th, as they had been driving around, shots had been fired at their vehicle while in a drive-by shooting which ultimately led to Sack, Chaser, and Juvie's deaths. After taking their friends to the hospital, they had died shortly later. Looking at the evidence released by the police, there's been multiple instances where some of the information provided was questionable. For example, both YNW members claim that they were victims in a drive-by shooting, but in the area they claim that it happened, no shots were reported. They also claimed that the shots had killed their friends and shortly after they drove them to the hospital. But looking at cell phone records, it had shown that after the reported time of the drive-by shooting, YNW Millie and YNW Borland had driven around for hours. Police believe it's most likely that they staged a story during this time and used this time to shoot up their vehicle and stage the drive-by shooting. 
Again, another piece of evidence that was questionable was the bullet trajectory analysis done by the police. By analyzing the trajectory of the rounds that had been fired into the car, you could see the bullets traveled from right to left, which contradicts the victim's left to right wounds. Not only this, but a 40 caliber shell casing had been discovered on the floorboard of the left rear passenger seat where YNW Melly had been sitting. The exact same shell cases had also been found at the crime scene. This influx of information has led to a lot of speculation from YNW Melly's fanbase. People are unsure whether YNW Melly would murder his two lifelong childhood friends for no reason. No motive has been clearly discussed and many people don't believe he did it. Looking at the information and the evidence though, it almost contradicts this. Shell casings found where he was sitting, no shots in the reported area, and bullet trajectory analysis that shows the path of the bullets didn't match the wounds of the victims. It all seems strange and can easily lead to speculation from many people. Over the past few years, as the case has been investigated and fought in court, new events have surfaced this year. YNW Melly has been fighting his case frequently this year, but it came to a stop in early April of 2020 when he had gotten COVID-19. He and his legal team had asked to be released on house arrest, but this request was denied. The pandemic has halted a lot of progress when it comes to hearings and court dates for YNW Melly's case. His next court date is being held on January 28th to discuss Bond. YNW Borland was released from prison May 23rd, 2020 on Bond and was placed on house arrest. Many people believe that YNW Borland's release will lead to YNW Melly's release soon, but he is still in prison as of today. This case has a lot of people torn on YNW Melly and YNW Borland's innocence. Maybe they did it. Maybe they didn't, but as 2021 goes on, more information is bound to be released, so make sure if you guys want to stay up to date on any more news, you hit that subscribe button. Let me know what you guys think about the case down below. And feel free to check out our other content. We post twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays. Thank you guys for watching. Speaking about protecting our kids, it's something that we hear more and more about. Teachers getting caught having inappropriate relationships with students. A lot of people may find it confusing because the age of consent in Nevada is 16, but the law is different when it comes to teachers and students. Michael Becker of Las Vegas Defense Group is here with an explanation. Can you explain what this difference is? Yes, and the law applies not only to teachers, but anybody who works at a school. In essence, notwithstanding the fact that the age of consent in Nevada is 16, a teacher or an employee of a school cannot have sexual relationships with a student regardless of age. That's really interesting because I think some people get confused with that. Now, if a teacher does behave inappropriately with a student, what are the consequences for that teacher? Well, there are consequences for the teacher and the student, but the teacher could face administrative, civil, or criminal legal problems. The teacher could get fired, suspended, they could get sued, and they could also get prosecuted criminally. Now, what exactly, what type of sexual harassment complaints against teachers are most common that you're seeing? 
Well, we're seeing everything ranging from relationships that carry over from the classroom to outside of school where teachers are uh, texting with students, meeting up with students, having unwanted physical contact with students, to situations where there's actual uh, sexual activity, including intercourse going on between teachers or school employees and students. Now, you mentioned lawsuits before. If a student it feels that they are harassed or involved in an inappropriate relationship with a teacher or someone that works at a school and they do their parents they want to file a lawsuit what do they do how did they they go about that well i mean obviously if a student is in distress and they're in a situation in a school where they're feeling discomfort the first step might be to go uh, either to your parents or to the principal's office and make a complaint after that, um, a lawyer could actually bring a lawsuit against either the teacher or the school district or oh, both. Okay. Now, let's take it from the other side. Let's look at it from a teacher's perspective. What if you're a teacher and you are accused of having an inappropriate relationship with a student and you are innocent? What's the first thing that you should do when you find out about this? Well, it, it's really important that you that a teacher either contacts their union representatives or an attorney because a teacher has the right to have representation quite uh, prior to questioning both by the school and by law enforcement who will ultimately take over these investigations some really really good information thank you so much for more info give las vegas defense group a call they obviously have the answers that you need 702 defense or you can visit their website um, right there on the screen there you go we're going to take a break we'll be right back prostitution is legal throughout the state of Nevada, except for Clark County, where Las Vegas is located, and Washoe County, which is where Reno is located. A lot of people come to Las Vegas and they're under the false impression that prostitution is legal everywhere. That's not the case. However, for a first time charge involving prostitution, we're often able to get those charges reduced to something like a trespass charge or even dismissed. It's not uncommon that we can get those charges dismissed. So if you have found yourself in a situation where you thought prostitution was legal or otherwise you got arrested by an undercover law enforcement officer posing as a prostitute, call us at 702 Defense. We'll talk about the facts of your case and we'll see how we can get your charges reduced or dismissed. In February of 2019, Florida rappers Y.W. Melly and Y.W. Portland were put in prison for allegedly staging a drive-by shooting which killed rappers Y.W. Sack Chaser and Y.W. Juvie. According to police, on the night of October 26, 2018, shortly after leaving the recording studio, Y.W. Melly as well as Y.W. Borland gunned down their two best friends and shot up their vehicle, making it seem as if a drive-by shooting was the result of their deaths. After Y.W. Melly and Y.W. Borland's arrest on February 13th, their personal legal battles began. 
As the legal battles played out while they were in prison, their side of the story had publicly been released. Y.N.W. Millie and Y.N.W. Borland claimed that on the night of October 26th, as they had been driving around, shots had been fired at their vehicle while in a drive-by shooting, which ultimately led to Sack, Chaser, and Juvie's deaths. After taking their friends to the hospital, they had died shortly later. Looking at the evidence released by the police, there's been multiple instances where some of the information provided was questionable. For example, both YNW members claim that they were victims in a drive-by shooting, but in the area they claim that it happened, no shots were reported. They also claim that the shots had killed their friends and shortly after they drove them to the hospital. But looking at cell phone records, it had shown that after the reported time of the drive-by shooting, YNW Millie and YNW Borland had driven around for hours. Police believe it's most likely that they staged a story during this time and used this time to shoot up their vehicle and stage the drive-by shooting. Again, another piece of evidence that was questionable was the bullet trajectory analysis done by the police. By analyzing the trajectory of the rounds that had been fired into the car, you could see the bullets traveled from right to left, which contradicts the victim's left to right wounds. Not only this, but a 40 caliber shell casing had been discovered on the floorboard of the left rear passenger seat where YNW Millie had been sitting. The exact same shell cases had also been found at the crime scene. This influx of information has led to a lot of speculation from YNW Millie's fanbase. People are unsure whether YNW Millie would murder his two lifelong childhood friends for no reason. No motive has been clearly discussed and many people don't believe he did it. Looking at the information and the evidence though, it almost contradicts this. Shell casings found where he was sitting, no shots in the reported area, and bullet trajectory analysis that shows the path of the bullets didn't match the wounds of the victims. It all seems strange and can easily lead to speculation from many people. Over the past two years, as the case has been investigated and fought in court, new events have surfaced this year. YNW Melly has been fighting his case frequently this year, but it came to a stop in early April of 2020, when he had gotten COVID-19. He and his legal team had asked to be released on house arrest, but this request was denied. The pandemic has halted a lot of progress when it comes to hearings and court dates for YNW Melly's case. His next court date is being held on January 28th to discuss Bond. Y.N.W. Borland was released from prison May 23rd, 2020 on Bond and was placed on house arrest. Many people believe that Y.N.W. Borland's release will lead to Y.N.W. Melly's release soon, but he is still in prison as of today. This case has a lot of people torn on Y.N.W. Melly and Y.N.W. Borland's innocence. Maybe they did it. Maybe they didn't, but as 2021 goes on, more information is bound to be released, so make sure if you guys want to stay up to date on any more news, you hit that subscribe button. Let me know what you guys think about the case down below. And feel free to check out our other content. We post twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays. Thank you guys for watching. Some utilization, so as long as you have one penny on there and less than 9%, you'll be maximizing this benefit. Now, 
I understand this is an ideal situation, but not everyone can pay down their credit cards to 9%. Maybe you have to carry a balance. Maybe you're coming out of debt and trying to repair your credit at the same time, and you can't afford to have perfect 9% or less utilization. Well, I should mention that paying down your credit card any amount by this statement date will have a dramatic impact on your credit score. For instance, from my own research, I found that that 62 point increase that I saw, it was just from one of my credit cards that I had previously at 100% utilization, which I now brought down to 50% utilization. And that explains the huge credit score increase that I saw even though I wasn't maximizing it and bringing it down to a full 9% or less that I should have, any payment would have helped my credit score and it definitely did. And again, I'm doing this for experimental purposes only. If you wanna be around for that video where I show you how I tanked my credit score and then completely recovered it again, make sure you're subscribed, make sure you hit the bell notification so you don't miss that video when it comes out. And I just wanna clarify, had I actually paid this credit card down under 9% utilization, I definitely would have seen a 100 point increase, likely more from just this one single credit card being paid down correctly. And I personally have seen this happen with someone who raised their credit score well over 100 points just by paying their credit card down on that statement date, and then less than a week later, that balance was reported to the credit bureaus and their credit score jumped up, reflecting that positive change to their credit. But if you do have multiple credit cards that are at a high utilization rate, this at most is only gonna take you 30 days because within that 30 days, you'll cycle through all of the statement dates with all of the credit cards and showing a proper utilization will have a huge impact on your credit score within that 30 days. And that's just to reiterate, you don't have to wait months to improve your credit score. All of this can happen in less than a single month just by knowing the statement dates, paying the credit cards down before that statement date, and then waiting a couple days for that statement balance to be reported to the credit bureaus and then having a huge credit boosting effect. But thanks so much for watching the video, guys. If you liked it, I would appreciate if you could hit the like button because it helps me out with the YouTube algorithm. But then also, if you're not yet subscribed, make sure you subscribe, make sure you hit the bell notification so you don't miss the video where I intentionally tanked my credit score and brought it back up and I'm gonna share the strategies that worked and more importantly, the strategies that definitely didn't work in trying to raise my credit score and what I found from my research in paying down my credit cards in certain amounts on certain dates over a certain period of time. Tons of technical stuff, tons of effort went into that video. So I'm really excited to share it with you guys. But again, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it. But thanks so much. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you guys in that next one.
And everyone knows that I love reading books, and I want to tell you guys about the Rick Ross book. It's called Hurricanes. I'm going to give it to you guys free of charge using Audible. The link will be in the description, and the link will be in the first comment. All you have to do is click the link, follow what I'm doing on the screen, or just click the link, and it's free of charge. If you don't like the service, or if you don't like Audible, if you don't like audiobooks, you can cancel the service, or you can leave their actual company and you get to keep the two free books. It's free of charge, $0 if you're looking at the screen. So make sure you click the link in my description or the first comment and make sure you enjoy that Rick Ross book. That will be the book of the month. So tap in and let me know. Thanks so much for getting to this video. I want to let you guys know about my TubeBuddy. TubeBuddy.com slash strong. A lot of people been hitting me up. Yo, how do I get my children to the next level? Click the link in the description or the first comment, or you can just go to TubeBuddy.com. It's T-U-B-B-U-D-D-Y.com slash strong. It'll let you sign up for free. That way you can take your channel to the next level. That's it for today. I'm signing out. I'm in the news with it, and I will catch you on the next one. the legal mechanism for challenging an unlawful search of your home here in Nevada is a motion to suppress evidence. If a motion to suppress evidence is granted because the law enforcement search was unlawful, the evidence in your case will be excluded and the case against you will likely be thrown out. Matthew is with us in Santa Barbara, California. Hey, Matthew, how are you? I'm doing great, Mr. Ramsey. How are you doing? Better than I deserve, sir. How can I help? Oh, that's, that's great to hear. Um, I am a, yeah, I'm 18, and I've been following your principles for a long time. I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I learned them from my parents, and, uh, you know, so I've never had a credit card, so I'm a little bit concerned about how to go about renting once I get out of college, um, because I know a lot of people won't rent to someone with no credit score. Well, there's two types of landlords. Um, there are ones that are what we would call a corporate landlord, meaning an apartment complex maybe that is owned by a real estate investment trust, and it's professionally managed by a management company that manages 27 apartment complexes all over California or something like that. Those kinds of people are going to be very rigid and are going to expect to see something like a credit score. They're, that manager of that apartment complex is not allowed to think for themselves. They're dictated by their corporate office a set of guidelines. Okay, You may not be okay. able to rent there. But here's what the irony is. I'm a multimillionaire, and I couldn't rent there. Yeah. I can buy the complex, but I couldn't rent there. You know, that's the irony of this ridiculous conversation. So, exactly. Um, so that just means that I can't do business with them. There's some people I can't do business with today because they won't do something with me because I don't have a FICO score. 
And that's okay. Before. That's okay. That's their decision to run their business. But my decision is, is I'm not going to go into debt just to get to play footsie with them. So, but you can rent to a landlord uh, of some kind that is able or willing to think for themselves. So let's kind of think about this. Pretend for a second you were a landlord, all right, and you had a guy come up. I mean, the way you were raised, let's say you owned a house and you were renting it, and you had a guy come up who's 22 years old and wants to rent the house. He has a fabulous credit score, two car payments, a credit card payment, and two student loans, okay? Or you have another guy standing there who has no credit score and no debt, and let's pretend they have a job making about the same money. Well, if I'm the landlord, I think the guy with no debt and no credit score is a better has a better chance of paying my rent because he doesn't have payments coming out his ears. And so as that's a landlord true, yeah. that's able to th- actually think and not just follow corporate policy, I'm more likely to rent to you than I am your doofus friend who's gone into debt to build up his credit score. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And and you don't even have to be a, like a Dave Ramsey acolyte to think that way. You just are using good critical thinking skills and going, uh, people that don't have payments can pay better. Huh? Hello. You know what I mean? It's really dumb, right? So... Yeah, you know that's that's what you got to do. Is so you you know you knock on the door and this sweet little couple comes out that's retired and they rent, have a rental house and they're going to show it to you and you go well, I just graduated from college I don't believe in borrowing money I don't have a credit score but what that really means to you is is that I'm able to pay the bill because I don't have any payments except this one so it's really good for you that I don't have a credit score and they go well yeah that kind of makes sense and that kind of person will rent to you all day long and they might be a manager in an apartment complex they might be just that sweet little rental ca- ca- retired couple that has a couple rental properties or somebody like me, you know, that has a bunch of rental properties. And I just use critical thinking skills. I, you know, we do look at people's credit, but we do not rent based on a lack of credit score unless it's more, we're more likely to rent based on a lack of a credit score. Because a lack of a credit score at all means you don't have debt. It's the only way to have no credit score. And not having debt means you have money if you have a job. It's a pretty simple formula for me as a landlord. So that's how you look at it. But, yeah, there's going to be some people who turn you down. But, again, they turn me down. And, you know, my net worth is tens of millions of dollars. And it's just stupid. You know, it's just a stupid world we live in. Another common defense to a drug sales charge is that the prosecution is relying on poor quality evidence. So, for example, we see a lot of cases where the police will engage in an undercover sting, an undercover buy, and they will not videotape it, and sometimes won't even audio tape it, and there's no pictures. And they come to court and it's basically just the uncorroborated word of the undercover officer. And the fact is that when there are evidentiary tools that the police could have used to make their case stronger and they don't, juries don't like that. And it often can be a road to acquittal. 
Also, sometimes the police rely on what they call uh, reliable confidential informants. But when we really go and investigate the informant, we find that they're not reliable at all. A lot of times these people are junkies. A lot of times these people strike a deal to work off their case with the police. And they'll tell the police anything that they want in order to work off their case. I mean, this is testimony that's bought and paid for. And when we have an unreliable informant that, that does a controlled buy that's the basis of the police case, we can put that person on the, on the witness stand and really tear them to shreds in cross-examination. Having been a prosecutor for five years and a criminal defense attorney for more than 10 years, all the time I see cases where people find themselves suffering immigration consequences for a criminal conviction that they were not expecting. Situations where they go to court and their attorney says, hey, I got you a great deal. You're going to get time served. You're going to get out today. No jail time. Just you sign these plea documents. It's, it's a terrific deal. And, and, and they go through with it. They plead guilty. They plead no contest. And then a year later, Sometimes five years later, sometimes 10 years later, they find themselves in removal proceedings about to be deported from the United States. Or they find that they leave the United States and they're not able to reenter, or they're not able to naturalize and become a citizen of the U.S. So to the extent that you are not a citizen of the United States and you've been charged with a crime, you want to get an attorney who understands not only criminal law, but immigration law as well, and can resolve the case in a way that not only gets you a good result in court, but that is not going to trigger immigration consequences. Now, there are also regulations against other type of animal fights, for example, cockfighting. And a first-time conviction for running a cockfight is a gross misdemeanor that carries up to 364 days in jail. A second time offense is a category E felony with up to four years in state prison. And a third time offense is a category D felony with up to four years in the state prison.